Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the It's Gonna Be Okay Baby podcast, hosted by yours truly, Alex, Alex Wellington. I hope everyone is having a good holiday season so far. I know this year probably feels much different. You know, chances are you might not have gone to see all your family or partake in your usual traditions, but either way, I hope you've been able to find some time recently for yourself to, you know, relax and recharge before we head into a new year, because I find that to be important. Um, Speaking of 2020 ending, I always enjoy this time of year because we often get to see lots of, you know, like year in review lists published, which I always enjoy reading, you know, whether it's a list about like favorite sports events of this year, like favorite movies or favorite albums to come out, or recently I've actually been watching a lot of videos about sort of the best skincare products of 2020. And I'm just obsessed. I love seeing what people have to say. I love um, having people do reviews and stuff like that because I find that they sort of force me to do my own reflection on the year. And, you know, that's certainly important. Um, Obviously, this year has sucked for the most part, um, but it's still beneficial to look back and think about things that made you happy or things you want to work on and stuff like that. So with that in mind, I thought it would be a fun idea for me to put together my own little sort of year in review, but have the focus this time be on climate change and the top sort of uh, events and disasters and craziness that have happened, um, as well as the top sort of environmental headlines that have come out of this year because, oh baby, um, there was a lot, a lot that happened. And I feel like it's very easy to forget about some of the things that happened both here in the United States as well as around the world. And so I want to do my best of job of sort of summarizing all that I can um, in terms of like what has happened that's, you know, environmental related. And hopefully by the end of this episode, you'll maybe have learned about something new that you didn't realize happened this year. Or if you're like me and you're on climate change Twitter um, and you've been up to date on everything, this will most likely just be, you know, a kind reminder that we are in the middle of a climate crisis and things aren't looking too good. Um, Either way, I'm planning to sort of split this episode up into two segments where I'll first begin by highlighting some of the major environmental disasters that occurred um, going like month by month. And then in the later half of the episode, I'm going to touch on some of the more positive environmental headlines to come out of this year so that this episode isn't just entirely gloom and doom, which it may sort of feel like in the beginning. Um, But without further ado, let's take a second and let's rewind ourselves back to the beginning of the year, which in my opinion legitimately feels like decades ago, and let's talk about what happened in January. Um, In my opinion, the only adequate way to describe January would be with two words, and those are floods and fires. On literally the first day of the year, January 1st, the Indonesian capital of Jakarta was slammed with the equivalent of 72,000 Olympic-sized swimming pools of rain, which resulted in the displacement of 60,000 people and a death toll of approximately 66. These flash floods were the worst floods Indonesia has seen since 2013, and it's been estimated that certain areas of North Jakarta are sinking by 6 to 10 inches a year, which is extremely concerning, um, especially being 
sort of a, a coastal city that's low-lying. Um, additionally, in the southeast of Brazil, specifically in the city of Belo Horizonte, there were uh, or there was also some crazy rainfall, which led to the displacement of more than 30,000 people and a death toll of 53. And while January is typically part of the summer sort of rainy season for Brazil, in which Belo Horizonte usually gets around 12 inches of rain sort of spread out across the month, this year the city was drenched by more than 32 inches of rain during a span of 27 days. So that's nearly three times the amount of rain that they get on average. And as a result, this onslaught of rain kind of spurred intense floodings and heavy landslides all over the city, which proved to be very deadly. So very scary things happening in Brazil at the beginning of this year. And then, of course, you certainly can't talk about uh, 2020, let alone January 2020, without mentioning the horrific wildfires and bushfires that swept through Australia. While a majority of these wildfires sort of began blazing and, and intensifying during, or so they, not intensifying, they kind of uh, began popping up around Australia in September of 2019, they did intensify in January, leading to 155 individual wildfires, including the development of a megafire, which was the result of two wildfires in the southeast of Australia sort of merging together. Um, this megafire in particular spanned over 2,300 square miles, and it's been estimated that the 2019-2020 wildfire season in Australia burned more than 29.7 million. Let me say that again. 29.7 million acres, resulting in the death of at least 33 people and more than a billion animals. Um, I'm sure we've all sort of seen those images of the firefighters going into um, sort of like the forest to rescue the koalas. And it just breaks my heart thinking about all the animals that weren't able to sort of survive these rapidly spreading fires. And in, in my opinion, it's just simply insane trying to visualize the scope and scale of these fires. But the reality is they're here to stay um, and most likely will only continue to get worse as time goes on. So very scary things happening in Australia. And, you know, meanwhile, as those fires were raging across Australia, we saw temperatures in the Antarctic reach record highs during the month of February. In particular, on February 9th, a pair of Brazilian scientists recorded a temperature of nearly 69 degrees Fahrenheit, which was described as both incredible, but extremely abnormal and a clear indication of climate instability. So let that just sink in, 69 degrees in the Antarctic. I don't, I mean, growing up, the only thing I associated with the Antarctic, of course, was just ice, polar bears, and, and that's it, you know? always dreamed of going there and just like sliding around on the ice. And the fact that it was 69 degrees in February? Absurd. Um, on that same day, interestingly enough, February 9th, swarms of deadly desert locusts descended upon seven countries in East Africa, threatening the food supply of tens of millions of people. These dreaded pests have the ability to devour rows of crops and pasturelands within hours, leading to, of course, food insecurity issues for so many people in an area that already suffers from a huge potential of famine. Um, as we know, much of Africa struggles um, often with issues of famine due to sort of invariable um, weather patterns. And so just to put this into perspective, it's feared that the worst of the outbreak of these deadly locusts may be yet to come, 
due to a combination of unusual weather and climate conditions, which are becoming increasingly common, of course, due to climate change. So yeah, if you thought January was bad, well, February really wasn't that much better. Um, and I, I can't stress enough how um, like crazy these locust swarms are. Um, you should certainly look it up and look at the pictures because it's just insane. Um, fields are just decimated within seconds or not within seconds, but within hours. And it's just, it's scary. And, and there's not much people can do about it. They can't, you know, spray things on the crops that will prevent these locusts from eating them. Um, and so really, really rough things happening, um, in East Africa during the month of February. Moving on to March, we saw 10 tornadoes touchdown across Tennessee in the late night hours of March 2nd and into the early morning of March 3rd. These tornadoes ranged from EF0 to EF4 on the Fujita scale, which if you're unfamiliar with, is the tool that is used to classify tornadoes based on their strength. And these vicious twisters unleashed winds that spiraled up to 175 miles per hour, causing many homes to be swept away and ended up resulting in a death toll of 25. And pivoting back to Africa, March also marked the beginning of the 2020 East Africa floods, where excessive rains affected over 700,000 people in the countries of Rwanda, Kenya, Somalia, Burundi, Ethiopia, Uganda, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Djibouti, and Tanzania. And these floods were especially harmful to agricultural land, leading to a ton, an absolute ton of crop failure and food shortages. So not only were uh, a large portion of these countries getting, you know, attacked by these locusts, right, having their, um, you know, agricultural land being attacked by that, but then, you know, a month later, they were having these intense, intense floods where, you know, rain was just absolutely um, soaking these fields and making it impossible for crops to sort of be harvested. Um, and since March, it's been estimated that this uh, sort of flooding crisis has led to the loss of over 400 lives. And future predictions by scientists suggest that these floods aren't going anywhere as unpredictable weather patterns become more and more common. And you're going to realize that as I sort of break down these months, flooding is going to be a very common occurrence. Um, you know, maybe you live somewhere where it doesn't flood that often and you should be extremely lucky because much of the world suffers from flooding and flooding can be extremely devastating in so many ways. Moving on, in April, Australia's beloved Great Barrier Reef experienced its third major bleaching event in the past five years which, um, of course, has caused severe and widespread damage. This year's bleaching proved to be the most extensive of the two prior bleaching events and spanned a distance of over 1,250 miles and was caused by warming ocean temperatures, which, of course, is a side effect of climate change. For me, this news is extremely upsetting because I actually had the opportunity to visit the Great Barrier Reef when I studied abroad in Australia during... Uh, my junior year, and I saw firsthand sort of the effects of bleaching when I went on sort of like a, a snorkeling slash like diving boat trip. And although I thought it looked pretty bleak back then, you know, the corals were rather bleached, um, there wasn't a whole lot of color. Um, I can't even imagine what it looks like now after 
undergoing a third bleaching within the last five years. And keep in mind, right, these bleachings have been have been occurring for a while now, but they used to the rate at which they occurred um, used to be spread out. So maybe one would happen, and then like fifty years later, another would happen. But now we're seeing that they're happening almost like back to back each year, and that is very concerning. Um, and you know, despite being worried about losing a natural wonder, um, in this case, the Great Barrier Reef. This news is significant because it could potentially have a ripple effect on our food supply, which I, which I don't think is talked about a whole lot. You know, people tend to focus more so on the aesthetic of the Great Barrier Reef, but the Great Barrier Reef actually has a role in our food supply. Um, in fact, hundreds of millions of people get their protein primarily from reef fish like coral trout, which is already being affected by the bleaching events on the Great Barrier Reef, and many scientists worry that the loss of that food supply could eventually become a humanitarian crisis. So yeah. It's, it's once again scary to think about because this issue in particular is a result of a positive feedback loop where as global temperatures continue to rise, our oceans as a result you know, continue to warm up, thereby resulting in the bleaching of coral reefs around the world. Um, and there's not much we can do to stop that besides focusing our efforts on reducing sort of greenhouse gas emissions, which of course lead to the increase in temperature. So... You know, it, coral bleaching is real, and it's it's scary, and I'm I'm feeling very very worried for the Great Barrier Reef, um, and for sort of the biodiversity that um, biodiversity of different you know fish organisms and stuff like that that depend on it for um, sort of their protection and habitat. Continuing on, I would consider May to be one of the worst one, months of 2020 when it comes to environmental-related disasters. First, we saw a series of dam collapses, one here in the United States, specific, oh my God, specifically, I'm like stuttering, specifically in Michigan, and then one in eastern Uzbekistan. In Michigan, two dams collapsed, leading to the spillage of billions of gallons of water. 11,000 people were displaced. As a result, 2,500 properties were destroyed, and damages resulted in about $200 million. In Uzbekistan, things were even worse. So if you thought that was bad, things were even worse. Um, after only three years of being built, um, a dam labeled as, or called uh, the Sardoba Dam, collapsed following some very heavy rain and resulted in the death of six people and the displacement of over 100,000 Uzbekistans. I hope that's what they're called, if not... That's awkward, and I apologize. Um, <laughs> these two events certainly highlight the sort of fragility of infrastructure around the world, and in my opinion, raise the question of how climate change might impact aging structures leading into the future. Um, you know, we always talk about like, or at least I feel like in, in debates, Trump would always be like, all right, I'm going to like fix the bridges, I'm going to do that. And it's like, okay, that's great, but we need to start legitimately doing that because climate change um, and sort of environmental related disasters are clearly having an effect on those aging structures um, you know, being shown in this example of these collapsing dams. Um, later on in the month of May, Southeast Asia got hit hard by a typhoon in the Philippines and a deadly cyclone in India and Bangladesh. Typhoon Vongfong was the equivalent of a Category 3 hurricane and led to five fatalities and the displacement of about 150,000 people in the Philippines. And five days later, Cyclone Amphan made a land made landfall and became one of the fastest developing storms 
anywhere in all of 2020. This cyclone killed 133 people in India, Bangladesh, and Sri Lanka. And at $15 billion in damages, it is the costliest cyclone on record in the North Indian that has developed in the North Indian Ocean. So that is just crazy. That whole sort of Southeastern Asia region just got devastated by these typhoons and cyclones to hit in May. Um, and back-to-back -back years of major cyclones in these countries are consistent with trends showing an increase in cyclone intensity in the region due to human-caused climate change. So, you know, if you thought these were just random events, like, for example, if, if, you, if you're listening to this, right, and you're from New Jersey or New York or anywhere really on the East Coast and you experienced Hurricane Sandy, you might have thought that was a random event at the time. Well, it's not. Um, these things are going to be only becoming more and more frequent. Um, and, you know, here in Southeast Asia, it's clear that these cyclones that are these major cyclones, not just like, you know, cyclones, major cyclones that are causing huge amounts of damage, it's becoming more and more consistent as evident by the fact that it's ha happening in back-to-back -back years. And it's just scientists are, have made it clear that, you know, this increase in intensity is largely due to human-caused climate change. So scary thought, people. Um, oh, and of course, did I mention that before moving on to June, in May, there was also an oil spill in Russia's Arctic region. Yeah, that happened too. Um, and it's been recorded that over 125,000 barrels of diesel fuel spilled from a collapsed storage tank at a power plant right above the Arctic Circle. Luckily, while most of the fuel has been cleaned up, toxic chemicals left behind by the diesel fuel could impact the region's biodiversity for decades to come. And that is not good, considering that biodiversity is and has always been recently on the decline. So the whole April showers bring May flowers saying wasn't exactly true this year, um, when you think about all these uh, disasters that occurred during the month of May. So scary stuff. Um, and of course, speaking of showers, June marked the beginning of the most expensive disaster in all of 2020 which was the seasonal monsoon flooding in China. This flooding uh, actually ended up lasting through September, um, however, began in June and affected more than 70 million people in southern China. By the time the flooding stopped, there were 278 people dead, 1.4 million homes and businesses damaged or destroyed, and $32 billion in damages, thus making it the third costliest non-U.S. weather disaster since 1990, just behind the 1998 flooding in China and the 2011 flooding in Thailand. Um, you know, what do those three things have in common? Flooding. And it's, it's just insane to think about. And what's even scarier is that a recent study found that for each uh, sort of 0 0.9 degrees Fahrenheit of warming, uh, like, increase, um, annual flood losses in China are increased as a result by more than $60 billion. So that kind of, I know that kind of sounded a little weird. So to break it down a little bit further, it's just, you know, obviously as the uh, temperature of the earth continues to rise, and in this case, um, only by, if it's only by like, you know, one degrees Fahrenheit, which is a lot, by the way, um, it the effects of that are, are huge in terms of how it uh, sort of promotes greater flooding and as a result, um, you know, greater damage in terms of money. Um, so it's very likely that flooding, flooding will just continue to become more and more of a problem throughout all of China. And as much as you can try to prepare for 
and anticipate floods. As we know, evacuations can only do so much, and not everyone has sort of the luxury or ability to evacuate. But, wow, um, I just have to take a second to, to pause. Like, we've We've made it to the halfway point of 2020, and it's just astonishing how much has occurred in those first six months. Um, disaster after disaster, and let it be known, I'm not even close to mentioning everything that happened around the world, because that would just take forever. I'd have to do like 10 episodes just to even come close to touching on everything that's happened around the world. I'm I'm doing my best to highlight some of the things that um, both were like very major in terms of damage, but also things that people might not be entirely familiar with. Um, and so, you know, I'm just making sure that that's, that's clear. Um, and if I'm missing things, um, please let me know. And I, um, you know, we'll try to maybe mention that in a future episode. Um, but alrighty, let's, let's keep going and let's talk about July. In July, we saw some extreme rain all around the world that caused some major landslides and flooding. In Nepal and Myanmar, there were two deadly landslides that led to the death of over 150 people. And then within a four-day span after that, both India and Bangladesh were hit with monsoon-like rains that led to de deadly flooding and a death toll of 200 people. Personally, um, I, I don't know if people agree with me on this, but I find that landslides and major floods to be just some of the scariest natural disasters out there, um, especially if you're living in a low-lying area, because there's just not much you can do besides evacuate and hope for the best. Um, and when you do evacuate, you're obviously leaving a lot of things behind. And as I touched on earlier, evacuation is 100% a privilege. And the, the, the ability to evacuate is a privilege. And there are so many people that often don't have the luxury to leave their homes. And so I just feel for these countries and, you know, sort of the devastation that they've been facing all year round when it comes to flooding. Um, but unfortunately, uh, the flooding didn't stop at all during July. Nigeria, or sorry, not in July, we're moving on to the next month. Um, Nigeria, Yemen, and once again, India all suffered from major landslides in August. Among the three countries, Yemen was the most affected, losing 174 people. And that's just the beginning of August, just to you know, kick it off. On top of the floods, we saw two significant oil spills, one occurring in Mauritius and one in Venezuela. Approximately 7,500 barrels of oil spilled into a pristine lagoon in Mauritius and the Venezuelan oil spill was, was worse. Um, in fact, it was nearly four times the size of the Mauritius spill, leaking approximately 27,000 barrels of oil. And projections by local scientists suggest that the impacts of these spills on ecosystems could last upwards of 50 years. And so while these oil spills aren't nearly as newsworthy as, let's say, the famous BP oil spill, they're still happening around the world, and biodiversity is suffering because of it, which is not good whatsoever. Um, I can't stress that enough. Biodiversity really holds this planet together. Um, you might not think that, but it does. And losing animals, plants, all the above is not good at all. Um, you know, they help keep ecosystems in balance and we cannot afford to lose them. Um, of course, August also sort of started the beginning of the deadly wildfires across a lot of Western states here in the United States, but most notably in California. To give you a sense of how bad these fires were, well, as of December 18th, um, so, you know, a week and a half ago, U.S. wildfires burned 10.25 million acres, which broke a record. Um, if you remember earlier in the pod, I mentioned Australia, and that was, you know, like 20-something million acres burned, um, which was a lot. Um, 
But here, and like I said, in um, the U.S., wildfires burned 10.25 million acres, which broke a record. Total U.S. wildfire damages in 2020 were $16.5 billion, making it the third costliest year on record. And five of the six largest wildfires in California's history occurred this year, including the state's first million-acre megafire, known as the August Complex. It was given a name. Um, and that's, ooh, mega fire is just crazy to think about. Um, additionally, in August, um, Hurricane Laura made landfall in Louisiana, and this Category 4 storm became one of the strongest storms to hit America in over 150 years. With winds reaching up to 150 miles per hour, Laura caused a lot of damage and killed at least 28 people. And it was just devastating to Louisiana. And keep Louisiana uh, in the back of your mind because I'll be sort of mentioning some other storms that hit it, and it's just unbelievable to think about uh, the amount of damage that that state suffered this year. And finally, for August, this isn't really a natural disaster per se, um, (laughs) but it's fucking scary, and so I figured I would mention it. On August 16th, Death Valley, uh, which is in California, set the world record for the hottest temperature ever recorded on Earth. And the temperature reading was 130 degrees Fahrenheit, which is just like, what? 130 degrees? Oh, and of course, I'll just mention this as well. The city of Phoenix, Arizona this year experienced a record rating 145 days above 100 degrees this year. Let that sink in. Do the math. 145 divided by 365 is 0.39 people. That is nearly 40% of the year where the temperature outside was over 100 degrees. What? Are you kidding me? I if you I don't think anyone from Phoenix is listening to this podcast, but if you are, please DM me and tell me, first of all, how you deal with that and how your city is dealing with that and how uh, the AC costs, I can't even imagine. I know Phoenix and, and Arizona as a whole is doing a really good job of um, harnessing like solar energy. But holy moly, if you don't believe in climate change by now, when you hear the statistic that nearly 40% of the year um, in Arizona or in Phoenix had days of 100 degrees or more, then I don't know what to tell you. That is ridiculous. So, you know, TLDR, to summarize, August was brutal. Um, but you know what was also brutal this year besides, oh my God, besides Brendan not winning The Bachelorette, which, you know, shout out Brendan for... Uh, realizing that he wasn't ready for marriage, um, but this, of course, is not a Bachelorette podcast, so I won't go into that. And if you don't watch The Bachelorette, you're probably like, just shut up already, and I will. Um, and, you know, happy for Tasha, of course. Okay, I'll shut up. Uh, well, you know, what was also brutal this year was the 2020 Atlantic hurricane season. Although the season technically started as early as June this year, which is crazy, it usually occurs uh, sort of in September, Um, It was the strongest and most impactful during the months of September, October, and November. As a whole, the 2020 Atlantic hurricane season produced an extraordinary 30 named storms. So storms that have a name attached to them. (laughs) I feel like that's kind of self-explanatory, which is the highest on record. Um, It produced 13 hurricanes, second highest on record. And six of those 13 hurricanes, six were major hurricanes, um, meaning that they were above a certain threshold of category which ties for the second highest on record. Um, So this season was more than double the activity of an average season, 
which just puts into perspective how crazy it was. Um, and to go even further, every single mile of the mainland U.S. coast from Texas to Maine was under a watch or warning related to tropical cyclones at some point in 2020. Insane. Um, U.S. hurricane damage exceeded $37 billion, which made it the eighth highest annual total on record. Um, and in September, since that's the month we've made it to, there were four hurricanes, which were called Hurricane Nana, Hurricane Paulette, Hurricane Sally, and Hurricane Teddy. And I will say, I always find the naming of hurricanes to be a little hilarious, um, because think about it, these names sound so non-threatening. Like, come on, when have you ever met a mean person named Sally? I certainly haven't, but the truth is that didn't stop Miss Sally from becoming a Category 2 hurricane that made landfall in Florida, resulting in 30 inches of rain, which is equivalent to four months of rain. Um, and by the time Sally passed, she caused massive flooding in the area, claiming several lives and causing billions of dollars worth of damage. Um, and while the three other hurricanes that I mentioned earlier didn't hit as severely, they still formed and developed, and it's once again just another clear indication of how climate change increases the likelihood of these storms um, forming and how climate change is going to alter our future and how, you know, coastal cities are kind of fucked. Um, moving along to October, fires continued to rage, hurricanes continued to strike, ice kept on melting, and one of the biggest typhoons in the last two decades hit Vietnam. Returning quickly to the wildfires for a second, on October 5th, California reported that it experienced its first gigafire, or otherwise referred to as a wildfire that has burned over 1 million acres in total. And trying to visualize that is just insane to think about, um, but it certainly brings me back to that viral photo of San Francisco where the city looks almost apocalyptic as it's covered in that like orange haze. Um, if you don't know what I'm look if you don't know what I'm referring to, just search um, I don't know like San Francisco orange or something. I'm sure it'll come up. Um, truly a terrifying scene in my opinion. Um, and on top of Hurricane Sally that was just mentioned, we had two major hurricanes form in the month of October. The first, known as Hurricane Delta, formed in the Caribbean Sea south of Jamaica and intensified into a strong Category 4 hurricane before weakening and making landfall on the Yucatan Peninsula as a high-end Category 2 hurricane. It eventually did make its second landfall in Louisiana, as I referred to earlier, on October 9th as a Category 2 hurricane, making it the record-tying fourth named storm of 2020 to strike the southern state. Um, the hurricane slammed the same region that was devastated by Hurricane Laura just six weeks prior, and while the damage wasn't nearly as severe this time, it made the path to rebuilding and recovery just that much harder. And if you thought, Alex, geez, Louisiana got slammed this year, well, what if I told you that 20 days later, following Hurricane Delta, the state was struck by another hurricane? Well, I would tell you that's true. Um, this one, by the name of Hurricane Zeta, which was one mile per hour shy of being classified as a category three hurricane, ended up hitting Louisiana. Um, and I, I just, I have to feel for the people of Louisiana who dealt with nonstop hurricane fatigue during the fall months. Um, I just cannot, can't even imagine what that must have been like. Um, on top of the fires and the hurricanes, we found out there was less Arctic sea ice this October than any previous October on record. And based on the data they've been collecting, scientists expect the Arctic to be ice free during the summer months beginning sometime between 2030 and 2050. Um, so that doesn't mean the entire Arctic will be melted, but it means that during the summer, when obviously the ice shelf does tend to uh, like melt a, a lot, but there still usually is floating ice, they're expecting the summer months to be ice-free sometime between 2030 and 2050, and that's just insane. Um, 
And finally, to wrap up a rather eventful October, there was, of course, Typhoon Malav. I think that's how it's uh, pronounced, um, spelled M-O-L-A-V-E. And this typhoon devastated Vietnam. The typhoon, packing 85-mile-per-hour winds, set off a series of landslides that ended up burying villages and towns, um, cutting power to millions of people and damaging approximately 56,000 houses, and left more than 60 people dead or missing. Um, Prior to this storm hitting, Vietnam was already struggling with nonstop catastrophic catastrophic flooding. Um, As I've been mentioning, flooding is just a nonstop global issue. And so this storm just came at the worst possible time and and was only exacerbated by prior flooding events. And while I'm sure that at this point in the episode, you're like desperately waiting for me to get to some of the more positive environmental headlines section, we definitely got to wrap up this year and touch on the devastation that occurred during the final two months of 2020. November, a bit of a doozy, was kicked off with Super Typhoon Goni, which was the strongest landfalling tropical cyclone in recorded history. Let that sink in for a second. Uh, Typhoon Goni made landfall in the Philippines on November 1st and had sustained winds that reached up to 195 miles per hour and ended up killing 31 people. It damaged 25, or 25, 250,000 homes and caused over $1 billion in damage, thus making it the second most expensive typhoon in Philippines history. And over in New Zealand, um, in the New Zealand city of Napier, or Napier, I forgot how to, I'm not sure how to uh, pronounce it, record-setting rainfall caused widespread flooding, power outages, and landslides, leading to the damage of over 3,000 homes. Um, according to local measurements, about 10 inches of rain fell during a 24-hour period, thus making it the heaviest downpour the country has seen in the last 57 years. You know, I feel like this year I was only hearing good things about New Zealand in terms of how they were handling the uh, sort of coronavirus pandemic and the fact that they were like corona-free. But of course, you know, um, Mother Nature had to sort of um, (laughs) repay them by dumping the most rain um, they've ever had in the last 57 years. So, of course. Um, And lastly, November closed out the Atlantic hurricane season with a bang as the most active November on record. In the span of 13 days, Category 4 hurricanes Eta and Iota, these are, of course, like Greek uh, names from like the Greek alphabet in which a lot of hurricanes are named after, made landfall in Central America just 15 miles apart from each other, affecting more than 5 million people and leading to the listing of 274 people as being dead or missing. Interestingly enough, um, and I find this just crazy, one month prior to these hurricanes hitting, the leaders of Guatemala and Honduras, uh, the two countries most impacted by these hurricanes, actually called on the United Nations to declare Central America as the region most affected by climate change. And while I'll say that I'm not 100% sure what the results of the United Nations calling Central America as the region most affected by climate change, like what that would do um, or like what the implications of that would be. It's clear that these countries need help in the fight against climate change and the world really needs to take notice of that um, based on how much uh, sort of suffering and damage they experienced from these two hurricanes alone. Finally, um, let's move on to December where thank the Lord, we finally see a bit of a slowdown. Um, but even still, um, lots of things happening. There was, of course, the usual flooding that impacted countries like Malaysia, Nigeria, and Iran, where in Iran, at least seven people were killed due to six inches of rain. And that six six inches of rain was equivalent to two months worth of rain for Iran. So six inches 
in one go, rather devastating. Additionally, you might have heard about or seen pictures of Venice being sort of underwater. Well, yeah, that happened, of course. Um, it's 2020. Why wouldn't Venice be underwater? Um, and while I say this was largely because of a flood defense system failing and not so much uh, an intense rainstorm, it's still a stark reminder that these low-lying coastal cities are essentially at the threat of becoming somewhat uninhabitable in the future. Um, you know, we always joke about and talk about Miami going underwater if sea levels continue to rise. But as Venice showed, it's very possible that this becomes a reality at some point, and who fucking knows what will happen to all of that real estate um, and sort of prime real estate that is right on the coast of Miami and other coastal cities. Um, and although there are still four days left in 2020 by the time this episode goes live, the world meteorological, world meteoro, meteoro, oh my God, I can't say this. I'm, I always have like certain words. I'm sure other people have this that they just can't pronounce the world meteoro, meteoro, oh my God, I can't say it. How do you say it? Meteorological, meteor, meteoro, oh my God. Oh, I'm just going to say, um, there's <laughs> Oh my goodness. I really should go back and re-record this section, but I'm not because I just want you guys to know like how genuine this podcast is at times. Um, there's an organization um, that's part of like a bunch of weather. There's a, there's a, there's a world weather organization, but I can't say the M word meteorological meteorology, but it's like a call, whatever. The point is, they announced that, barring any significant changes, 2020 is set to be the warmest year on record, and throughout the last 12 months, temperatures have been 1.2 degrees Celsius warmer than they were in pre-industrial times. So yeah, there you have it, folks. Um, it's been an insane year for a variety of reasons, and, I said, and as I said earlier, this is just scratching the surface when it comes to all of the climate and environmental-related disasters that struck planet Earth this year. And so on that note, I'm going to go learn how to first talk about, or first how to pronounce a lot of these words that I couldn't even say during this episode. Um, but I'm also going to take a quick ad break. And when we're back, I will jump right into what I consider to be some of the top environmental victories of 2020. Alrighty, hello again. Um, to end on a lighter note, as I promised at the beginning of this episode, I want to end this podcast by mentioning sort of 10 positive environmental headlines to come out of this year because in my opinion we absolutely need some good energy going into the new year and hopefully hearing these will at the very least make you not want to sort of shrivel up and cry when thinking about climate change and the future we have ahead of us. Um, to start in February, this is some good news, the American Psychological Association found that for the first time the majority of Americans, 56%, agree that climate change is the most significant issue we face as a society. Climate change, for some reason, has always been a weird bipartisan issue, which is truly ridiculous. Um, and while 56% is still not good enough of a percentage, in my opinion, it is definitely promising that some people are starting to come around on this issue and are ranking it as the top issue we face as society, because it is. Um, you know, everything, climate change, like, encompasses so many different things, whether it's, like, racial inequality, um, like, labor inequality, um, socioeconomic inequality, like, all, all that stuff uh, ties in with climate change, and so I'm glad that people are finally coming around to the realization that we are, uh, we need to sort of address this issue head on. Um, and the second headline I want to mention um, is about a French startup named Harbios, who 
discovered an enzyme that could break down PET plastics, which are the most common type of plastic in the world. Um, and they discovered this earlier this year. After further research, they unveiled a new iteration of the microorganism that could almost completely degrade a metric ton of PET plastic in just under 10 hours, which is huge news in the fight against plastic pollution. Um, we all know that plastic, and more importantly, plastic waste, is a huge environmental issue with about half of all plastic ending up in sort of bodies of water or in landfills. And so the hope is that if this technology can be scaled up, um, it makes the possibility of true sort of industrial scale biological real recycling of PET a possibility. Um, and that's that's great. You know, I, recycling, uh, while it's it's good, it'd be great if there's a way in which um, sort of the plastics can be broken down quicker and, and be sort of turned into new products so that we can sort of promote a, a circular kind of recycling system. Uh, moving along, in July, we finally got some good news regarding pipelines here in the United States. In fact, a federal judge ruled that the Dakota Access Pipeline must shut down pending a new environmental review. And on that same day, the Supreme Court rejected a request by the Trump administration to allow construction of the long-delayed Keystone Pipeline. Uh, the Supreme Court ruled that the Army Corps of Engineers had failed to consider the pipeline's effect on endangered species and therefore could not go ahead with construction. Um, and with this ruling and sort of Biden's recent election um, as president, we may finally be able to shut down this project for good, which is great news. Um, and in fact, the day before those two sort of like rare rejections occurred, two of the nation's largest utility companies announced they are going to cancel the construction of the Atlantic Coast Pipeline, which never got off the ground um, to begin with. Um, but this is great because this pipeline would have transported natural gas all across the Appalachian Trail into Virginia and North Carolina. Um, and the reason for the cancellation is largely due to increasing project costs and environmental lawsuits, which honestly makes me very happy because to me, this kind of signals that we are finally starting to, in essence, reevaluate the value of natural gas and oil. Um, and hopefully this can trigger, or trigger, trigger, this hopefully can trigger a transition to a more renewable energy focused future, which is ideally the goal if we have any hopes of meeting certain demands. Um, so good news in terms of um, some of the more major pipelines that exist in this country. Uh, the fourth headline I want to touch on has to do with the Great American Outdoors Act. Um, if you're unfamiliar, in uh, I'll, I'll sort of explain what it is, but in, in August when Trump signed the Great American Outdoors Act, um, Democrats definitely warned that he was only doing so as a political favor for Colorado's uh, Cory Gardner and Montana's Steve Daines, who were two vulnerable Western Republican senators um, who co-sponsored the bill. Um, and, and many people thought it was sort of in an attempt to keep their seats in the November election, um, which turns out Gardner lost his bid for re-election, um, but Danes won his re-election. Um, however, whatever Trump's motives were behind signing this bill, the bipartisan bill was a huge victory for conservation. And what it does is it permanently funds the Land and Water Conservation Fund at $900 million annually, and it creates a separate pot of money up to $9.5 billion to be spread out across five years, which can be used to provide much needed maintenance for um, sort of our, our national parks um, in terms of you know 
maintaining critical facilities and infrastructure in those parks, as well as um, providing needed maintenance for, you know, different projects in forests and wildlife refuges um, and sort of recreation areas across the country. So that's really cool. Um, you know, not a whole lot of good done by the Trump administration when it comes to environment, to the environment. Um, but the fact that he was able to sign this bill um, is sort of a win in terms of environmental conservation. Moving along, we also got some positive news coming out of Wall Street, which is kind of hard to believe, considering I feel like most people tend to associate Wall Street with corruption and greed. Uh, but I will say that the environment scored um, a big win on November 31st when Bank of America announced that it would no longer finance fossil fuel exploration in the Arctic region. Um, Bank of America was the last major final financial institution to do so, joining Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, Chase, Wells Fargo, and Citibank, which had all made, which had all made similar pledges um, to no longer sort of like finance uh, fossil fuel exploration, which is really cool. Um, and going along with this theme of phasing out fossil fuels, my sixth environmental positive for 2020 has to do with committing to 100% renewable energy. Virginia and Rhode Island both committed to 100% renewable energy um, in 2020, um, and as the seventh state to make this pledge, Virginia became the first state in the South to pass a law committing to providing 100% renewable uh, energy to its citizens by mid-century. The, the momentum there um, didn't actually stop, as we saw Houston, Sacramento, Ann Arbor, and Savannah um, become cities that made new or expanded commitments to 100% renewable energy. And by year's end, seven states and more than 150 cities pledged to power themselves with clean energy, thus meaning that one-third of Americans now live in a place committed to 100% clean or renewable energy by 2050 or sooner, which, hey, that's, um, that's a pretty cool statistic. And I would love to be able to say, like, yeah, I live in a place that's committing to 100% renewable energy. Um, so... That's pretty cool. I'm, I'm pretty glad to see that happening um, with sort of the asterisks being that hopefully this happens, you know, it's, it's very easy to commit to something, um, but it, I'd rather, I, I hope that the plans that are being put in place actually go forth um, because, you know, as we've seen with, for example, the Paris Climate Agreements, yeah, like these countries made uh, commitment to something, but so far we're not really um, meeting those goals. So hopefully these uh, cities and states actually have a plan in place and we can meet them, uh, consider assuming that things go to plan. My seventh headline for this year is dedicated to all of you who love the ocean. You'll be glad to know that at the beginning of this month in December, 14 nations announced that they would sustainably manage 100% of their coastal waters by 2025, protecting an area of the ocean totaling roughly the size of Africa. Uh, each country slash nation vowed to combat overfishing, invest in reducing pollution, and set aside 30% of its national waters as marine protected areas by 2030. And the 14 nations who signed onto this initiative were Australia, Canada, Chile, Ghana, Indonesia, Japan, Kenya, Mexico, Namibia, Norway, Portugal, and the island nations of Fiji, Jamaica, and Palau. Combined, uh, they represent 40% of 
of the world's coastlines, 30% of the offshore exclusive economic zones, and 20% of the world's fisheries. So yeah, this is great. Um, I'm very happy that these nations came together um, and sort of figured out a plan for sustaining ocean health because protecting our oceans does not get nearly as much attention as it should. And I am glad to see that we are finally um, taking a little bit of initiative on this. Um, we'll see if, you know, what the U.S. sort of decides to do. But good to see that other countries are focusing and um, dedicating some of their environmental initiatives to the ocean. To wrap up, um, because this has been, it hasn't, I wouldn't say it's been a, a long app, but it's, uh, it's just been a lot of information being thrown at you. Um, I want to combine sort of my final three headlines into just one large headline because I'm I'm excited to talk about the nominees for Biden's newly announced climate team. Although I will say I was disappointed to see that Biden picked sort of a poor choice, in my opinion, for the Secretary of Agriculture, he has made up for that selection somewhat by unveiling a strong cast of you know, diverse nominee, uh, nominees for key energy and climate positions, including the prospective heads of the Department of the Interior, Department of Energy, and the Environmental Protection Agency, among others. Biden's choice to lead Interior is New Mexico Representative Deb Haaland, who, if confirmed by the Senate, will become the first Native American to occupy a position in a presidential cabinet, which is awesome. Um, and significant because if confirmed, Holland will oversee the management and conservation of more than 500 million acres of federal lands and natural resources. And in a recent press conference, she promised that under her tenure, decisions made by her department to tackle the climate crisis will be once again driven by science and guided by environmental justice for marginalized communities, which is just so necessary. And it's great to actually have someone from uh, you know, her background being in that position. Additionally, Biden has nominated Michael Reagan, the Secretary of North Carolina's Department of Environmental Quality, to lead the EPA. Um, and this is great. If confirmed, Reagan will be the first black man to head the agency responsible for protecting the country's environment and its citizens' health. And so far, Reagan has pledged that every person in the United States has the right to clean air, clean water, and a healthier life, no matter how much money they have in their pockets. Um, or the community that they live in. And uh, just hearing that is, is refreshing. Um, I really hope he is confirmed because the EPA under the Trump administration has, in my opinion, gone to shit. Um, and we really need someone to right the ship and restore the trust between sort of state environmental departments and the sort of ultimate federal agency that oversees the country's environment. Finally, I want to mention Gina McCarthy, who is Biden's pick to become the first ever national climate advisor. This is a position that hasn't really existed before, um, you know, to no surprise, because we have, you know, basically downplayed climate change forever. Um, but like many of the other nominees, McCarthy connected her work to sort of a, a formative childhood experience, which in her case, growing up in a community burdened by air pollution in Massachusetts, her background led her to a career in public service where McCarthy worked to help communities like her so that they could overcome the legacies of environmental harm that have endangered their health and livelihoods, um, which just hearing that is, it makes me excited. Um, with these three nominees kind of leading the charge on climate, I have a lot of hope that environmental justice will be pushed to the forefront of 
future climate policies. And, you know, there are just, there are so many marginalized communities here in the United States that are disproportionately impacted by environmental harms. And it's, it's really time for the leaders of this country to step up and recognize that and work to make sure that future actions help and not harm these communities, which they, you know, these communities have just been suffering for so long and it's, it's not fair. It's, we cannot continue to take advantage of them. Um, so yeah, that, that's going to do it for me today. This was, this has been really a, a lovely episode to record. I, I really hope you got an opportunity to learn something new because while I was doing a little bit of research um, sort of about these topics, I certainly learned about some things that happened that I didn't know about. Um, and of course, as you know, climate change is in no way going away anytime soon. And while I'm, you know, very terrified of future natural disasters that might occur, I'm hoping I'm really, really hoping that we can maybe turn a new leaf with this new administration. Um, but until then, you know, fingers crossed, but until then, keep doing your best to, you know, convince your crazy uncle that climate change is real, because I'm sure there are a lot of you out there that have to do that when you go home for the holidays, and it might be tough. But, you know, we, we got to get people that 56% of, you know, everyone in the United States that believes in climate change, that's not good enough. We need it to be 100%. So, you know, I'm hoping that after listening to this, you'll be like, yeah, all right, climate change is real. Let's start talking to the people that we know and make sure that they're kind of on board with that opinion. It's not even an opinion, it's a fact. <laughs> um, but yeah, all right, you guys, if you, if you enjoyed today's episode, or if you liked any of the past episodes, uh, I would be so appreciative if you gave the pod five stars on Apple Podcasts and left a review while you're at it. No pressure to do so if, if you're not interested. It's, it, this pod is just fun for me. I, I'll keep reiterating it. This is no in no way, shape, or form ever going to be like a real career or anything like that. I just I like talking to you guys, and hopefully you've, you've been enjoying the episodes. And if not, I, I apologize. Um, <laughs> but with that, I'll throw it over to my girls at Muna for the outro. And thank you so much for listening.